This is Inspiring Women, and today I'm speaking with Naomi Allen. She is the co-founder and CEO of Brightline Health. Naomi and I met at a Seven Wire Ventures meeting, which is one of her very prominent investors in Brightline Health. She has the likes of GV and Oak and KKR and others um, having raised over 200 million in just a couple of years for a really important problem, solving the problem of mental health, behavioral health in issues in children and adolescents. Naomi, thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Thanks so much for having me, Laurie. Okay. Well, let's just dive in. I mean, you're busy, you're building a really important company in a space that it direly needs solutions. So Naomi, just like day-to-day, what are you doing right now? What does day-to-day look like for you at Brightline Health? Yeah, well, this is a particularly fun and hectic time because in January, we're launching services for six and a half million kids in the state of California. So uh, California is the first state in the country that's investing in statewide pediatric and family mental health services um, that are going to be free. So we're really excited about that. It's a big opportunity for us to in- increase equity and access. So uh, it's you know it's go time for us. We're just a few weeks out from that launch. I think by the time you release the podcast, it will have happened. So the program is called Bright Life Kids, and um, we're really excited about that. So that's that's kind of what's going on right now. You know, I think in addition to that, we just always have a steady drumbeat where we very actively serve our members and want to deliver high quality care. So monitoring our our care outcomes and the clinical quality. And then we've had a pretty uh, consistent growth in terms of our uh, health plan and employer business. So we're launching about 25 new customers in January. We've got about 500 employer customers. So continuing to nurture and grow um, that side of the business as well. So never a dull moment. (laughs) It's just insane to me, the amount of growth. But Naomi, you're no stranger to growth. I mean, your background, McKinsey, Lavongo, Castlight. So this isn't the first time that you've built um, a pretty substantial um, company. So just like, what does that experience bring to you in terms of the ability um, to lead Brightline? Where did the idea come from? And why was this particular problem the important one for you to tackle next. Thank you. Well, I think uh, first the the through line of my career, you know, I've always worked in healthcare. I left McKinsey in 08 to move into the digital health spaces. I was a founder at Castlight with Todd Park and Giovanni Colella and Brian Roberts. And as it turns out, uh, the through line of my career in the past 15 years has been around mental health. When I was at Castlight, I was on maternity leave and had undiagnosed postpartum anxiety. And I had had friends who'd had postpartum depression, but never postpartum anxiety. I didn't even know that was a thing. And it was pretty debilitating. I uh, was uncomfortable leaving the house with my baby. So that meant I wasn't really making any mom friends. I wasn't getting the type of physical exercise that would have helped my mental health. Um, I wasn't sleeping well because I was having pretty disruptive nightmares um, around something happening to him or me. Um, And so when I I got a diagnosis right before I returned to work, I returned to work at Castlight and I had a a clinician and a product leader say, hey, we believe there's an opportunity to scale mental health services using telemedicine. And um, I was running product at the time and they asked for me to help champion internally a business case to build what became Elevate, which is Castlight's mental health offering. 
and I had no idea that that there was such a thing as as telemental health services and that CBT could be effectively delivered using virtual care. And this was in 2012. So it was before Lyra existed, before Spring, Ginger, the companies that are now more, more commonly known for providing telemental health services for adults. And so that was really my first foray. Um, after we took Castlick Public, I stayed for about a year and then I uh, founded a mental health company for couples therapy and did that for about a year. And then I paused that um, as my husband also went to a, a seed stage company. So I moved to Livongo as chief growth officer. And while I was at Livongo, um, we part of my growth mandate was expansion beyond diabetes. We were trying to move into other chronic conditions and we bought a mental health company that I was responsible for integrating into Livongo's core business. So I had, <clears throat> I had kind of inadvertently been working in mental health on the adult side for about seven years. And then one of my kids had a mental health crisis. And all of a sudden, Lori, I was that mom who, you know, didn't know where to go, didn't know how to navigate the pediatric mental health universe, you know, sat on wait lists where we didn't get any services through my son's school. Um, we didn't get any, um, you know, in-network providers through our health plan. So we really went on a journey as a family for months trying to get my my son into appropriate care and I, I think as part of that, thankfully, um, you know, my community of of colleagues and investors and people who know me well knew I was really passionate about this space. And so Annie Lamont over at Oak reached out and said, hey, we we think there's a huge gap in pediatrics uh, for mental health. And this is pre-COVID. So I think that their insight in that market opportunity and that market gap was really critical um, and so they asked me if I wanted to start a company in this space. So that's been that's been four years. It has been um, an absolute joy and delight and challenge. Um, starting companies in COVID is is no joke. And then COVID combined with the kind of uh, you know ups and downs of this market have been really challenging. But um, I think there's been a tremendous recognition that this is a category of care that should exist. That our kids deserve better than what they've had. And that Brightline is the category leader, really driving that innovation platform. Well, as excited as I am about the company and the growth, I'm more interested in solving this problem. I don't think there's any lack of understanding of how severe mm -hmm. and how widespread the need is for services for kids, for adolescents. We've got the Surgeon General, you know, saying that three out of five girls, um, teenage girls, are sad or depressed. We've got, you know, new data from Meta and these algorithms that we know are not helpful um, to young, um, young people. And we also know that we're coming out of a pandemic that was one, but not the only thing that's causing this problem. So just given the scale, the widespread magnitude of the challenges that are out there for, do you call them adolescents? Do you call them children? Do you call them young people? How do you categorize yeah. Well, it you know it's we we serve a broad age range, so eighteen months up to eighteen years. So we talk about children, adolescents, and teens. Um, yeah. uh, unfortunately, uh, you you know the language varies when you're talking to the individuals themselves because yeah. adolescents don't like that word; they don't want to be called adolescents. Sure. So it is a little tricky. Our our care team is very astute at kind of picking up on the language that our members like to to use and using their appropriate pronouns, et cetera. But in general, you know, kids, adolescents, and teens is kind of, or, or, you know, if you're talking more clinically, you can talk about the pediatric space. So, 
But just given just given how significant and large the problem is, is it it, it but there's a lot of innovation in this space, which is exciting. But do you um do you feel that we're going to categorically be able to address these issues, mm. turn them around, mm. solve, make better? And then I want to talk about Brightline specifically and what you're doing and what you're seeing in terms of results. Sure. Well, here's what I'll say. Um, I am very optimistic about where we're headed as a country. And so, you know, obviously the 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 prevalence rates, the rates of need have increased dramatically, not just during COVID, but post-COVID, those high incident rates of anxiety, depression, um, suicide, non-suicidal self-injury, et cetera, are all still elevated. So that wasn't quote unquote just a COVID blip. That is, we have a sustained need. Um, but we also have a sustained awareness, um, which I think is, you know, kind of one of the biggest silver linings out of COVID is just the the broad visibility that the pediatric and youth mental health crisis has had globally. Um, and we are seeing really reduced stigma, um, interestingly, more from the youth themselves than from their parents and art and kind of my generation, right? So we see a lot of kids that are really leading the way saying like, I need support. I need more than I'm getting, talking to their peers, talking to their friends and, a, and a, with a new dialogue, um, even relative to a few years ago. So uh, I think we're we're really excited about kind of the overall direction of the narrative and the conversation and the awareness. Um, com combined with slower but progressive innovation around um, care modalities, care delivery, and payment. And so um, lots of innovation happening on the modality side, you know, this old world where therapy was the only way that you could get treatment. And it was once a week in a room face-to-face -face with your therapist. Like that world is, is evolving in a really rich and innovative way. And we're seeing slower, but progressive support from insurance companies around payment for other modalities, groups, peers, um, coaches for subclinical services, digital interventions for things that are more wellness oriented. So I do see a progressive um, stance with regard to payment reform, which is kind of how that that innovation gets fueled. Um, so I, I am very optimistic. And, you know, I think the the last thing around this is kids are resilient. We do know that half of all severe mental illness manifests before the age of 14. So catching kids early, really making sure that we're providing early support but when you do that, kids have a lot of resilience. The care models work. They're very effective. And so I think that's the perhaps the main reason why I'm I am excited is because if we can get early enough in, in supporting these kids and wrap around services um, that are affordable for families, then um, I think we can have a real step change in terms of the, of the, you know, the next generation of kids growing up. Well, the model that you're talking about um, in, launching in California is incredible. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. I mean, removing the barrier of payment mm -hmm. and providing these services to 6.5 million, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll say young people, that is absolutely astounding. I mean, congratulations. That's um, absolutely amazing. But that demand is also incredible. So how are you able to handle the supply mm -hmm. side with the therapist, the therapists or tooling or whatever to meet that level of demand? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, here's what I'll say. There's not enough licensed therapists in the country to serve the needs. And so 
what we have done at Brightline is just acknowledge that early on and said, okay, we need to be doing a bunch of things. Um, first of all, in pediatric mental health, um, less than 20% of clinicians use any uh, documentation around measurement and evidence-based guidelines. And what's really critical around using measurement is then you can essentially right-size the dose. And so what you don't want to do is treat a child or an adolescent or teen for too long where you're using those clinical resources unnecessarily because the child's gotten better and they don't need to continue with therapy or psychiatry services. You don't want to treat them for too short um, because then they might have a recurrence or something that goes you know, off the rails later. And so measurement is the way to know how's that child progressing? Are they progressing towards clinical goals? Are they progressing towards family treatment goals, right? So the difference between measuring an anxiety score like a GAD7 versus a treatment goal, like my teenager wants to, or my, my adolescent wants to be able to go away to sleep over camp without having an anxiety attack. And so those are, you know, the, the systems of measurement really matter, not just to make sure that kids are getting better, but to also make sure that we're using the the short limitation of resources that we have most effectively to to scale across a population. So that's one point. Um, I think the other is really this innovation around the care delivery model. So we've built out a digital library of a few hundred digital interventions and a nationwide coaching team. And what we see is very effectively, uh, we can serve about 40% of members using that that subclinical service. So when folks come to Brightline, um, we can do a little bit of upfront triage and screening using a screener tool. And then we say, hey, coaching would be a great place for you. Um, we, you know, we, we're happy to start with coaching. Let's get you into a few weeks of that and see if it's effective. And we find that it really is. And lots of families, that's kind of all they need. Um, so that's, I think, the, the second leg of the stool um, combined with getting those subclinical services paid for so that people don't wait, right? So what happens often is families are waiting way too long. And then when they finally pull the trigger to say, I need some support for my kid, then they're on wait lists for months. And so yeah. that's how we end up in these crisis situations where you're having to go to an emergency room or the child is having much more severe symptoms. And so how do we create not just the mechanisms for families to get into the level of care, but the the financial wherewithal to do that? And so, um, you know, benefit design and payment structure really matters a lot. Um, and then last but not least, we do a ton of work on our side, just in terms of kind of what I would consider to be supply demand mapping. Um, our time to first appointment is less than a week. Um, we if we provide an intake appointment for a patient, we ensure that they have a slot for ongoing care. Um, the worst thing is, and this actually happened to me recently, I, um, I was using a different digital health provider and we were able to get two weeks of appointments for one of my kids. He started to get to know his coach and then they had to shift times. They didn't have any ongoing times. And so all of a sudden he went from having 7 a.m. appointments, which worked, to yeah. the only availability was at 11 a.m. I'm like, I'm not going to pull my kid out of school. So oh, and it's like, it's like, it's, it's like, you know, sort of like the Uberization of That's this right. 
particular space. How does um how does to, uh, sort of like innovation like AI play into mm -hmm. this, and yeah. how are you thinking about using that to accelerate whether it's the mapping of services to um person that needs it? What does it play in? What do you, what does the the executive order provide? The recent executive order from the um administration does that provide the appropriate guardrails that yeah. you think are going to be necessary? Um, particularly in the population that you're dealing with? Yeah, great questions. Um, so I think that AI plays a really critical role here and doesn't supplant the the need for human-led services. So we really, we talk about, you know, our care is powered by people enabled by technology, uh, not the other way around. We don't think that, you know, AI and bot, botified um, mental health services can scale for the vast majority of acuity levels, right? Certainly useful for certain things. And so I'm not at all suggesting that there aren't people for, you know, who could be served predominantly by, you know, AI tech enabled services without a human, but we believe that the type of care that we provide that's truly life-changing requires humans as a big piece of that care delivery. And so um, then, then the question is like, what does that tech enablement look like? And so in our world, um, we've started with just using um, some sentiment analysis to look at, you know, cases where there might be indications of clinical risk or escalation needs. Um, we are looking at AI tools as a way to improve care team efficiency. So, you know, notes, documentation, um, synthesis of cases. Um, we work in a care team environment, so a clinician will have um, other folks that they'll be doing a case consult with, or if they need to escalate a case to a psychiatrist. So we have a team-based approach. And so AI can be really good for, um, for sort of, you know, within that team unit, helping to share information. And then we haven't done as much of this yet, but we're working on a vision around how to use um, AI to be more predictive in terms of um, two things. One is folks who may be showing signs of dropping out of a care program before the child is really ready, before the before there's the clinical outcomes are met. And then second is looking at folks who've successfully completed a program. But one of the things we know about kids is so often life changes and you have a, a need, you know, something occurs and you have a need to come back to services or you need what we what we jokingly refer to as a booster shot, right? You need a an additional therapy session or two. Um, and so how do we um, use technology to more appropriately anticipate those needs and be doing more active outreach to members that may need some support and just not have kind of activated towards that? So I think there's a lot of things there. Um, you know, I think the other piece is we, we use clinical protocols that are modularized so you can um, essentially m map a care plan together. So let's say um, if you've got a child who has um, anxiety and we you start to treat them for anxiety and then partway through that, you realize that anxiety is a result of childhood trauma. And so we, then you want to add in um, trauma-related um, services. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a real opportunity for technology to be helping to construct appropriate care plans if you've got the right sort of ingredients, but but really being able to do um, anticipation around care plans that are going to be the most effective and then measuring those care plans more effectively.
Well, I think um, I, I have to just say, you know, given again, the scale at which um, this problem needs to be addressed, that different targeted areas that you're thinking about using um, AI um, within Brightline, that sounds excellent. And the predictive opportunity mm -hmm. in particular, and we all have too many um, uh, known incidents of, you know, where that would have just been so critical had someone known that an intervention um, was needed for a young person. So um, Naomi, I just hope it works. I hope it all works and I hope you continue to um, build this out. I wanna close out on just a couple of questions. This is inspiring women. Um, you know better than anybody, sort of the statistics, we have less than 2% of founders and CEOs who are women who are receiving the funding that is out there for companies. That has not been the case for you, which is wonderful. So why do you think that is? What is, um, what, are the things that made that so uh, compelling for you to raise the types of funds that you have and have needed um, for Brightline, where that hasn't been the case for so many other women CEOs and founders? Hmm. Well, here's what I'll say. I think, I think first the ecosystem's evolving and there is now a generation of women executives that are experienced serial entrepreneurs. Um, during COVID, I started a, a group of um, digital health CEO, uh, digital health women's digital health women CEO group. And if I look around at my peers, these are folks who've led, you know, been executives at many other companies. They they're at their series B, series C stage. Some of them are even later than that. Um, and, um, I think there is a maturation of the, of the talent amongst women leaders who can go out and demonstrate they've got a track record of building very successful companies in digital health. And that matters, um, as well as an ecosystem of female investors who are senior enough in their teams and their funds to write big checks. Um, and they're unafraid to put checks behind ideas that are often led by women, right? So women's health, I think we're seeing the rise there. Um, pediatrics, mental health, the types of things that women executives, women CEOs um, often want to found. And so there's a nice kind of evolution and maturation of the ecosystem around the entrepreneurship and investor side that's, I think, making it possible for women executives in certain realms of digital health to have larger rounds, which is what it takes to drive this type of scale of innovation, right? I've got a 50 state therapy model and psychiatry team. That's a very expensive endeavor. You can't build that on, you know, $5 million. And so um, I do think that that's helping. I think that there's also um, companies or investors that that are really oriented around um, what, what Seven Wire appropriately calls founder market fit, right? It's, it's, they want to look for founders who have the grittiness and the durability to go through the hard years. And I don't think anybody could, I, I certainly couldn't have anticipated what we would deal with a bright line over the course of the past four years from, you know, the pandemic. And we were 13 people old when the pandemic happened and we had to completely change our, our care model. We were building clinics. We had to change our team uh, and the way we operated and we had to grow, you know, in a remote time and then the economic downturn and SBB debacle, et cetera. So I, I do so appreciate the investors who look at founder market fit, because if you've got that, that internal drive and that, and that passion for your, your, your vision and your market, you will go through harder things and, and, and endure to the other side. And I think 
I think writing bigger checks are, are behind those people makes a ton of sense, regardless of gender. Um, and then I think one of the things that I learned that has served me well over the last 10 years, um, is a skill that I started to learn when we were taking Castlight Public, which is around telling the category story. So not just telling the kind of nuts and bolts, like here's how the financials of my business performed over the last six months. And, you know, here's what the customers say about us, or here's why we believe we have product market fit, but the vision around the company and the category, right? And so Brightline has absolutely created a category. When we um, when we started the company, when I started the company, uh, one of the first phone calls that I made was to a guy named Steve Blumenfield, who is the head of innovation for Willis Tower, Willis Towers Watson. So the head of innovation, right? And I know Steve, he's a wonderful guy. He's also passionate around our mission. He's like, Naomi, nobody's talking about kids and mental health. It's just, there's not a thing there. There's like, there's not, it doesn't show up in the claims, doesn't, no employers are talking about it, right? And so, you know, we had to really believe that there could be a category created here. And now certainly there is, and is a category that I think now in retrospect, it's hard to imagine that four years ago, nobody had a pediatric mental health solution, right? So I think it's it's telling that category story, not just the nuts and bolts of where your company is at a point in time, but a vision. And we actually have at Brightline a much bigger vision than where we are now, right? We're focused, we've been focused on employers. Yeah. Now we're moving into public sector. We states. think it's a tremendous yeah. opportunity for states, for Medicaid, right? And so um, we're in conversations with five or six health systems around how do we wrap Brightline around their, you know, inpatient care models. And so there is a massive need here. And so how do you, how do you really start to tell that story at a broader scale and then have the credibility that you can actually go accomplish that? And, and frankly, the team and the investors to go do that. There's also just some really strong lessons in um, your comments, you know, starting with that bigger vision mm -hmm. um, and recognizing that up front and then starting sort of at the top um, with relationships and surrounding yourself with other women who are in that sort of experience category, because as you well know, not everybody has the experience um, that you came into bright line um, with, but those are, those are actual practical things that other women CEOs and founders um, can do. So I so appreciate you sharing them. Naomi, I want to uh, close out on Inspiring Women with only, uh, we're in a holiday season, wrapping up a year. And since you're in the space of helping so many young people, um, with mental health, what are you doing to sort of like keep yourself sane and calm and wonderful during this holiday season? Thanks for that question. Um, and it's such a, my husband would pay you to ask me that question because he's always <laughs> trying to remind me of this. So I'd say for me, there's a few things. One is um, I am really trying to just get more like small moments of connection with my kids, whether that's an extra 10 minutes of cuddling or my 11 year old has recently discovered the joy of running. So we're taking these, I can't run very far. He can run further than I can, but these very short runs together just to get 10, 20 minutes of quality time. So I think small moments of connection because as a CEO, I don't have a lot of big moments, um, but I do have small moments. And I think the other piece is I really love a glass of wine at the end of the day. It's what separates my work day from my relaxation but making sure that I don't, you know, kind of go for that second glass that I'm really trying to refill my glass with water instead of it. So just, just moderation in terms of, you know, that I, I know that alcohol increases my anxiety, it decreases my sleep quality. And so just trying to be thoughtful about, um, you know, taking care of myself from a, a hydration and sleep quality during a busy season. Um, and then I think the third thing is, um, 
I really try to reflect on gratefulness. I being an entrepreneur and a serial entrepreneur, it is a selfish act professionally. Um, it is, you know, everyone's everyone else in my family's schedule and lives revolve around mine. Um, when I am on the road, I am on the road when my child is sick, my husband's first point of contact, my nanny's third, my mother-in-law, my, my, my nanny's second, my mother-in-law's third, I am fourth. And so, you know, I've got a support structure that a lot of people don't have and entrepreneurship is, is a selfish act. And I am deeply, deeply grateful for my support team that enables it. And so, you know, in the days I'm like, oh, this job is really hard. I'm like, yeah, but I, I chose it. And I've built a life around it and I've got people who enable that and just being grateful for them, I think is, is really grounding for me. Naomi, there's so much unbelievable advice that you're um, providing for listeners. So again, I just really thank you um, for all of it. This has been an excellent, inspiring women episode. I've been speaking with Naomi Allen and Naomi, thank you so much. A pleasure. Thanks for your time. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.